The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So, Lise Hand, Dave Hanratty, Brianna Parkins, Owen Tomás McDermott are all regulars on The Last Word. We've asked them to come in and talk about the things that we've been talking about all year. Some of the most important things, some things that maybe are not too important, but we're talking about them anyway. We'll get to those a little bit later. But it has been a year in which the word of the year, Lise Hand, is permacrisis. So how would you describe permacrisis and how apt do you think it is as a word of the year? I think it's probably quite apt. Um, permacrisis, it, it, it really kind of does what it says in the tin. You know, it's everybody's been in this sort of massive state of anxiety and everybody seems to, the whole world seems to lurch from one disaster to the next. And, you know, when you think back 10 years ago, the word of the year was omnishambles, which almost seems benign by comparison. <laughs> you know, you kind of go, what a lovely word that was. And we thought that was as bad as it could get. And now we're looking back going, oh, for the gentle days of omnishambles. So permacrisis, I think it sort of sums up just everybody, just when you think you're over COVID and the next thing there's wars breaking out and we're not over COVID and the cost of living and and just, you know, permanent political division. So it's, I think it's just left everybody just feeling uh, like on edge all year and not quite knowing what's coming around the corner. Because, Brianna Parkins, I think when COVID came to an end, or we were told it has come to an end with the lifting of restrictions earlier in the year, I think everyone expected just sort of this massive lift forward. Did it happen? Yeah, it was meant, good times were meant to arrive. And I think permacrisis is a really fancy way of saying shit sandwich, um, which is really what this year has been. Uh, whatever way you look at it, it uh, we all kind of had this optimism that, you know, life would return and, and things would be great and the economy was going to be fine. Like the COVID hadn't hit it, but of course, you know, we were about to get hit with a massive wave of inflation, energy crisis, uh, the war in Ukraine. We could not have predicted that at all. Matt, may I jump in that? You can all. Quickly, just because I'm listening to it and I'd agree with everything Brianna and Lisa said, but it also strikes me a little like permacrisis has been the way of the world for not just the last decade, but the last century. It's hard to think really of of a decade in the last 100 years that hasn't had some sort of economic upheaval or the war. Like if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, essentially began in 1914 with the World War One. We then had Spanish flu, I think, came shortly after in 18 and 20. The Wall Street crash at the end of 19, uh, the 1920s, that led then to the Great Depression. The 30s and 40s, we know, had World War. Uh, we had in the 50s, the Cold War and the Korean War. The Suez Canal. Am I making you depressed yet, Matt? On the Suez Canal. And is this you what have... you call perspective, is it? Well, you see, I think it's it's important for us to know. Like, if you then look at the 60s, like we had Vietnam and the Troubles, for example, you then have the energy crisis in the 70s, the Falklands in the 80s, the Gulf War in the 90s, the war in Bosnia and Kosovo, the dot-com bubble in the early noughties, 9-11, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the global financial crisis. And then we have COVID and then we have Ukraine. And I think the thing is, though, that we do get through it. And I'm kind of reminded of the Churchill line that says when you're going through hell the trick is to keep going um, because we do have a great capacity as a, as, a, as a, a grouping and humanity of getting through these challenges. We might be coming to another one but we do get through them and it is with democracy free debate, reason thinking and an element of collectivism that allow us navigate these challenges so that maybe yes it's perma, uh, perma crisis or it was omni shambles 10 years ago at least said, but it really has been the way of the world, certainly for the last century. 
Steph Hanratty. <laughs> Follow that, yeah. And <laughs> Jesus. I mean, what, what, what a wonderful advertisement for life itself there in that rundown as well. Uh, before, of course, the Churchill quote got us all feeling good about ourselves again. Always great to hear from the great man. Um, I think ultimately with this one, yeah, I mean, like, Fair play to the Collins uh, Dictionary for just bringing everyone down by picking one of the most bleak possible words and reference points that we can all go through. I mean, could there not have been a bit more levity here? Could they not have called it fiasco, for example, like a word that we all enjoy? But um, unfortunately, with that very comprehensive rundown that we've just heard there, it is painfully accurate and it isn't going away. I mean, like, you know, uh, my life is a permacrisis, Matt. You know, like, like th- this is how it is. Can you have a perma-midlife crisis? I don't know. Maybe that'll be next year's word. But... <laughs> At the same time, though, I do think that this has become a very good kind of marketing campaign on behalf of the dictionaries themselves. Can I just say that you have a different word of the year to the Australians? Oh, really? And you had a much more sort of philosophical, you know, important word of the year. Ours was bachelor's handbag, which is what you describe taking home. You know when you go to the hot deli counter at uh, Dunn's and there's like roast chickens in a bag? That's what you call a bachelor's handbag because you walk home with it and that's, you know, that's what you eat. Oh, sort of like the, probably a kebab would be the sort of the Irish one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This was the the bachelor's handbag. So that was our, the intellectuals that we are, that was our word of the year. Okay, well, let's just hear, of course, the thing that made this such a dreadful year in many respects, all the repercussions were of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I think perhaps we really didn't think was going to happen. This is when Joe Biden, the American president, warned that it would happen. We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days. We believe that they will target Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. We're calling out Russia's plans loudly and repeatedly, not because we want a conflict, but because we're doing everything in our power to remove any reason that Russia may give to justify invading Ukraine and prevent them from moving. Make no mistake, if Russia pursues its plans, it will be responsible for a catastrophic and needless war of choice. But the bottom line is this. The United States and our allies and partners will support the Ukrainian people. We will hold Russia accountable for its actions. The West is united and resolved. We're ready to impose severe sanctions on Russia if it further invades Ukraine. I think it's fair to say on Tomas McDermott, lots of people just didn't think it could happen or would happen, didn't they? Yeah, very much so. I remember the in and around the Winter Olympics as well, where we were saying, gosh, if anything's going to happen, it won't happen until after them. And still being so surprised on the 24th of February that it did happen. And then I suppose that there was a lot of commentary around where there was an expectation were it to happen, that it might be over pretty quickly. And the reminder of the, the kind of the World War One quote of it'll be over by Christmas. There was a sense that it might be, it might not go on that long, particularly where there was a view of, say, for example, Putin, where you'd say, well, he was a, a strategic leader, extraordinarily calculated and probably had gamed this out. You looked at Zelensky and you say, well, this fellow is an actor and totally unprepared for this. And you look at the West then and you say, well, the West hasn't been a particularly divided region or particularly, um, it has been particularly divided um, over that period of time. And you look at the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, where nothing happened. But then what we end up seeing is Putin got this wrong, that his intelligence was uh, failed, and that Zelensky has shown himself to be, as Time magazine have said, the hero of the year. And the West has brought, been united in a way that we haven't seen in quite a while. So it has been, uh, 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 it's a, obviously a very depressing 10 months where 
where we see that the war is continuing, but that a lot of the, the predictions that we would have heard back in February have proven to be wrong. We heard a little bit of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in his speech that he made to the Houses of Congress this week in Washington. But we also have what he said back in March and what has been a rare online address in English uh, in which he called for people all over Europe and beyond to protest over the war. I thank everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. The acts of terror against peaceful people go on. One month already, that long. It breaks my heart, hearts of all Ukrainians and every free person on the planet. That's why I ask you to stand against the war, starting from March 24th, exactly one month after the Russian invasion. From this day and after then, show your standing. Come from your offices, your homes, your schools and universities. Come in the name of peace. Come with Ukrainian symbols to support Ukraine, to support freedom, to support life. Brianna, as Owen Tomas said, he was an actor before he became president, but maybe a situation like this demands a performance. An actor who played the president. Uh, you know, there's, there's kind of this theory, what is it, athletes in America, when, you, when you're selecting candidates called athletes, uh, actors and astronauts, and that is people who look good behind a lectern and can deliver rousing speeches and, and you know, boost morale and to get buy-in from their own citizens. I mean, his citizens could have, could have turned on him and said, actually, we're not going to do this. We're just going to surrender. Um, so it was, it was a big gamble for him as well. And, yeah, you need that kind of presence. And the sort of diplomacy side, the soft diplomacy of looking very camera-friendly to world leaders. I mean, he appeared at music festivals. He's kind of seen as, as the new cool act to have on Bill. So it's been really interesting watching the cult of his personality develop. And also in terms of coverage, people see him as he's never pursued any aggressive policy. You know, Ukrainian troops have not committed war crimes. It seems to kind of, a lot of his faults seems to, to fade away in the face of Russian aggression. Isan, you've become a misinformation expert for your work with Kinzen. And what have you seen of efforts to win the war via propaganda over the last 10 months? Well, I think there's sort of there's sort of several approaches on that. The obviously the Russian propaganda machine has been extremely active. Um, they a lot of that has to do with with spreading rumors that well the whole actually look it comes from the chief of misinformation officer, which is Vladimir Putin, <clears throat> who basically used the um, the excuse of invading Ukraine, saying he wanted to go and uh, execute a program of denazification. And this is an old trope that's been that's you know been propagated for years, and that was a justification. Um, and then any time that an atrocity happened in in like say the bombing of a of a maternity hospital, we say the the Russians bombed a maternity hospital, and there was graphic image image a scene of pregnant women you know leaving, and one woman actually you know who was carried out in a stretcher, she subsequently died, and her baby did. Um, and they tried to say that one woman that was pictured was one of the, the, the classic images of that, sort of covered in blood, picking away down stairs, heavily pregnant. Um, they tried to say that it was fake blood. And I think it was the BBC that actually tracked her down and, you know, said and actually interviewed her. And she'd had a baby and she was quite clearly not an actor. So every time an atrocity happened, they tried to, the, the Russians would try and say, this is a fake thing. It's been set up. 
Um, so I think, and I think on the other hand, that as Zelensky has played a very, he's actually played the game really well. He has used social media incredibly well to get his message out to, you know, to remind people every single day. So, it, you know, it's been very interesting, but Russia have not had it their own way. I mean, it should be noted as well. Like, I mean, it's not just Russians. Like, there is the, the like Zelensky's hero of the year. He's on Time Magazine. He's in fashion shoots. He's uh, as Brown says, popping up in music festivals, MTV awards, and there are people who, for whatever reason, just don't like the side of the guy, and for you know, are trying to, I guess, undermine everything that's gone on over there. And I just find it kind of strange that. It's not dissimilar to COVID's effect on the world in the last couple of years. Some people's brains have been broken by what's happening far away from our doorstep. And like Zelensky, for some reason, is the the guy that you go to and look at and say, well, he's the problem, which I don't fully understand. I do think that, he, you know, he, he's obviously, you know, he's a fighting president. He, anytime he's in any, any of his addresses, he looks like he hasn't slept in days. Uh, he is, there is, Brown used the phrase, the cult of personality around him. I can understand why people mm-hmm. might want to be, might want to move away from that and say, I don't want to see this guy pop up in my timeline every single day, but I don't think it's a case of capitalizing on the public interest in that way. I think he's going through an unbelievable trauma as are his countrymen. And I think on the ground level as well, the individual stories still tend to kind of resonate. There was a thread on Twitter this week about a young soldier who was out fighting for his country, fighting for Ukraine, didn't even have boots, he had trainers on. And he was a young fellow, about 21. He went over to the journalist that allowed to smile on his face. And not like a maniacal thing. It was someone who was clearly defiant and ready to fight for his country. He fought with his dad. His dad passed away. Uh, he's back on the front line days later. He himself is injured horrifically in a shrapnel attack. His face is destroyed. He's back on the front line a week later and still has the good grace. And you see these kind of people from every walk of life, whether it is Zelensky at the very, very top of this or a soldier who's, you know, 21 years of age or younger, and it is hard to kind of scroll past this in your timeline and not be affected by it. We're going to have to take a break. Dave Hanratty, who you've just heard, is with us with Lise Hand, Brianna Parkins and Ontimos McDermott. And uh, we'll be looking at the impact of all this on Ireland when we come back after the traffic with Neil O'Reilly. So uh, let's talk about how this war is impacted on Ireland. But before we get to actually, there was this bizarre story earlier in the year when it seemed that the right, the might of the Russian naval forces uh, couldn't overcome the fishermen of Cork. Let's hear a little bit of Brendan Byrne from the Irish Fish Processors and Exporters Association on guarantees received from the Russian ambassador to Ireland, Yuri Filatov, about uh, Russian expeditions in Irish fishing waters. There'll be a clear understanding of who's going to be where so that both parties know that there'll be a buffer zone between. While at the same time, there's an absolute guarantee that our traditional fishing grounds will not, will not be impacted by the Russian naval exercises. Okay, but I think we got to learn over the course of the early sand, didn't we, that nothing that Yuri Filatov promised should be taken seriously. No, it was more like Yuri Filatov there, really, wasn't it? But um, yeah, that was, you know, he he really didn't do himself any favours over the course of the year. I mean, time after time, he would stare into the eyeballs of a, an interviewee, interviewer and say just something lie. and just lie and was would be challenged robustly at every hand's turn as well. And um, I mean, that that story was <laughs> the fishermen. I mean, it, it, was, it was amusing before it was amusing. they went and invaded Ukraine. Yeah. And it also, <laughs> but it was also sort of the start of a, of a, what rightly should be a kind of like open to wider debate just about how just the Irish Defence Forces are. I mean, they really are. I mean, we've got, you know, sort of six boats and six planes and, uh, you do know, we, we can't... Many? I think we do, but we've, you know, we've that no mark. subs. 
um, we've got something like, you know, like a tiny army and there's something like 16% of the European waters are kind of, you know, unguarded essentially because every time, you know, a dodgy plane appears in the sky, we've got to go and ask our neighbours, could you have a look at that? Because we don't even have the capacity. So... While it was funny, the Russians basically said these lads are nowhere when it comes to defence, so we can do what we like. Let's go and have a look at all the underground, underground cables and, you know. That was like one, one of Eamon Ryan's many quotes of the year, which stood out, of course, and he was saying, look, we don't have fighter jets. It's like, yeah, we know that, Eamon. I mean, like, like Ireland has never been in that kind of a position. And, like, that's one of those weird kind of slow-creeping conversations in the doll that always feels to me is like, well, we've nothing else to talk about today. Let's talk about potentially militarising the country in, in a much more, you know, I guess colossal sense which i don't think is going to come across the fisherman story as yeah as you correctly point out contextually for a week or two was like this is kind of funny and it's like fair play to the lads it's all about tradition and like you know the the might of the russian military is no might for you know the the, the, this group essentially but unfortunately it has when you come to the end of this year and you've seen like what we have seen in every single news report in terms of how russian has russia has acted with its military kind of might it's been a bit of a disaster from all fronts and i think yeah filatov as well has been just this kind of horrendous Bond villain at, at every turn. And like every quote he comes out with, every time he plays to the camera, it's just complete and utter villainy. Let's hear Michal Martin, or Taoiseach, at the time on BBC's Sunday morning programme back in March when he was asked about Ukrainian refugees coming to Ireland. Our primary impulse is to assist those fleeing war. Um, and um, and that's you know the, the Irish people are very seized by this atro- the, the series of atrocities that are going on. What we're witnessing on our screens every evening is really shocking people, and there's huge human empathy there, obviously, uh, to help the women and the children. And so we we because of the temporary protective directive of the European Union, what Ireland is doing basically, if Ukrainians come into Ireland, they'll have access to our social protection uh, income. Uh, access to our health services, access to education, uh, the right to work immediately. Um, And and, uh, we believe that's the correct thing to do in the context of the worst displacement of people and refugee crisis since World War II. Brianna Parkins, how well do you think has Ireland done in hosting, I think it's an estimated 70,000 Ukrainian refugees this year? Just over 67,000, I think, by the last counts in December. Um, And that doesn't include people who've gone back and and come back again. Uh, I watched this with sort of my fist in my mouth. I'd been covering refugee um, affairs from the context of Australia, which is known internationally for our infamous uh, refugee processing policies, which is offshore handling, which is a very hard line uh, stance to take. And when I saw Ireland sort of throwing open its doors, saying, look, you can come, we will house you, you will have access to healthcare, and we will support you to to get on your feet. Um, I just thought it was it was an incredibly kind at its heart, but stunningly myopic policy. And it kind of, in my four years here, falls under the government, the Irish government's tendency to sort of do this, sure, it'll be grand policy making. That's, that's the school it seems to come from, because you're in the middle of a housing crisis. You're depending on a charity, which is the Red Cross, to coordinate uh, offers of accommodation from the local public. You're, you've got an overcapacity, overstrained health system. It was never going to end well. You were always going to get people, a certain section of society who thought that they were already being hard done by and probably were being hard done by going, look, now we're going to have to fight newcomers um, already for our already scarce resources. It was always going to to kind of be open for the right wing elements to to exploit. Well, to make that on Tomas McDermott, that we weren't capable of delivering upon the generosity that we promised. 
Well, I suppose it was always going to be a difficult thing to do quickly because as we've talked about how quickly things changed in early February, um, because everything that Brianna has talked about is, is absolutely accurate to the pressure on our housing, the pressure on our health system, and then the questions of where were we going to give um, people coming from Ukraine shelter. But that idea of it, it just was the right thing to do and just sometimes the right thing isn't the easy thing. And I think by and large, yes, things have haven't been perfect, but that we have done done particularly well. But I actually think some of that comes back to to the conversation that we we're having about Zelensky. Part of why we we have been willing and um, open to bringing people in is Zelensky's capacity to keep the public's eye and the world's eye positively on Ukraine, um, because there could always be the risk where it would begin to drift and we begin to start hearing other sides of the story, whereas his capacity of being able to present himself and Ukraine positively, I think, is remarkable and that he has done a remarkable job on it. And even if you and I think that's where when we look at him, yes, we might say, yes, he has an element of style about him. But often communications too often gets measured by style when, in fact, it should be measured by outcome. And Zelensky has achieved outcomes in relation to the positive in Ukraine. We can see it here in Ireland. But even last week for or this week when he was in the US getting the 1.8 billion in military supplies and the Patriot missile defense system, they are positive outcomes for him. So yes, it hasn't been easy. But as I said, uh, often the right thing to do isn't uh, the easy thing. Dave, there was reference made earlier to Putin wargaming the situation as it's described. But part of that was knowing that Europe would struggle to deal with the inevitable refugees from Ukraine and would struggle to deal with higher energy prices. Although, bizarrely, in the last week, and we won't see it probably in our bills for a while, but gas prices have actually fallen back to the same level they were before the invasion. Which is surprising, yeah, because I think we thought we were in this for the long haul and we probably still are. I mean, obviously, like the current kind of, I guess, mood from both Russia and Ukraine is this hasn't gone away for quite some time. And I think you could argue if if sowing the seeds of discord amongst people, allies for Ukraine is something that could be a weapon for Putin. It's worked out well in his favour. It's one of the few things that has this year. And just to bring it back to the refugee thing for just a second, because like President Michael D. Higgins put out his Christmas speech today, his, his Christmas address to the nation. It's like a seven and a half minute speech in which he discusses how, you know, all, all kinds of things, you know, healthcare workers, uh, you know, like obviously Irish people as well. But the crux and the headline of what he's saying is he's asking the Irish people for solidarity with refugees who are in this country, whether it's from Ukraine, Africa or elsewhere. And I think that I don't know if that would have been the headline for him had it not have been from recent events, say, like protests in East Wall and just the kind of growing sentiment in the country, which, again, should be directed to the government. I would agree that the infrastructure wasn't in place. But I do think that the people who are in this country who are forced to be here and have nowhere else to go, the start of 2022, this wasn't their plan. And, you know, be kind to them, essentially, if that's possible. I know that might be naive. They're escaping from death and destruction. I mean, like, this is the thing. It's like, like, what? I understand that Ireland is clearly so far behind looking after its own people and the government have failed in so many, so many ways. But there are people here who are just trying to survive. As for energy crisis and Putin and the gas situation, I, mean, I will say, like, it became over the summer, like, not comical because it isn't comical whatsoever, but it was week on week and it was a new announcement from a new energy company and they all followed suit, all followed the same thing. And they're all saying the same thing. It's just, we know it's bad and nonetheless, we're raising your prices by, oh, I don't know, 200% and get used to it. But yeah, they're trickling back down a little bit, but it does feel very, very, I don't know, like, like it is bleak outcome. We're, we're, we're at this time of year where it's absolutely freezing in some people's houses, people who can't afford it. 
and you know it's just not it's where the usual thing prices go up an awful lot faster than they come down again but the key point is gas prices on the wholesale markets which feed into everything else are back down to where they were before the invasion and we want to see how fast that will be reflected in the prices people pay we've got to take another break before the 5 of 5 uh, Dave Hanratty on Tomas McDermott Brianna Parkins Elise Hander staying with us we've lots of different things to get through in the next hour we're continuing our review of the year with Lise Hand Brianna Parkins Dave Hanratty and on Tomas McDermott and what we're going to do now is something we do each year during this programme. We put together a combination of the voices of people who have died this year, both Irish and international, very well-known people. And we'll talk a little bit about them once we've heard it. And just to let you know who you're going to hear, the voices include Ray Liotta, the actor, Paul Servino, another actor, Coolio, the rapper, Terry Hall of the Specials, who died this week, Paul Ryder from The Happy Mondays, the actor Dennis Waterman, Angela Lansbury, England's Queen Elizabeth II, Irina Cara of fame, June Brown, known as Dot Cotton from EastEnders, Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes, the actor Anne Hesch, the singer and actor Olivia Newton-John, actor Kirsty Alley, Marvin Lee Day, who preferred to be known as Meatloaf, uh, the Northern Ireland politician and Good Friday Agreement signatory David Trimble, Tom Parker from The Wanted, actor James Cann, musician Jerry Lee Lewis, drummer Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters, actor Robbie Coltrane, the musician Christine McVie from Fleetwood Mac, and of course, Vicky Phelan. Let's hear them. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. What the FBI could never understand that what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. I'm not talking about what you did inside. You did what you had to do. I'm talking about now. From now, here, and now. Holly, why would I want to get into that? Don't make a jerk out of me. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Video. You ask me nicely and I'll tell you. Let me ask him, Jack. No, you shut your mouth because every time you open it, I feel sick. Right. You're a very hard nut. I'm very impressed. May I please have my video? Because if you have it, I would be very grateful if you return it to me. Thank you very much. All you had to do was ask. It's a guess, it's a guess, sakes alive, and I'll be blessed. Wine's important, thank the Lord. I've had the napkins freshly pressed. With this. What's your proudest accomplishment? Being alive. (laughs) Being alive. (laughs) Who's someone from history you wish you could take to lunch? Several. 
be a whole crowd outside the door. <laughs> Who pops out? The Queen of England. We've got a lot to do. We sing one love for two for you, I guess. She's our guest. Madam President, speaking here in Dublin Castle, it is impossible to ignore the weight of history as it was yesterday when you and I laid wreaths at the Garden of Remembrance. Indeed, so much of this visit reminds us of the complexity of our history, its many layers and traditions, but also the importance of forbearance and conciliation, of being able to bow to the past, but not be bound by it. What you're doing is my best china. You're like your father, you're heavy-handed. <laughs> I might like him in other ways. Well, I don't really know you, do I? Now, are you familiar, Lady Gaga, with these standards? No, don't say yes, darling. If you're not, you're not, and I don't blame you. <laughs> I actually am a very big fan of yours. Aww. I just don't watch a lot of television. No, I don't oh. watch any. <laughs> you know, he comes home all hours of the night without announcing when and why and where he's been for the last three months. And you know what he does? He rearranges the cabinets. He remakes the bed. He vacuums the entire house. Do you know what I mean? The vacuums, huh? It's abnormal, okay? It's abnormal behavior. Dr. Sterling Crane, our resident researcher. This is Cliff Clavin, our resident trivia expert. This is Norm Peterson, our resident. <laughs> this is Woody the bartender and Carla the waitress. And what do you do, Rebecca? We rise from this table knowing that the union is stronger than it was when we sat down. The sun goes down, the stars come out, and all I comes is here and now. My universe will never be the same, I'm glad you came.
taking the books back? <laughs> see, I, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make me feel bad when, in actuality, you're the one that missed the payments. But the children love the books. I know that. Uh, you know, I'm the one that ran the focus groups, but I like hearing that. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, the blood of three. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. I let you love what I thought it was funny. You came along and woo, now honey, I've changed my mind. I sat down with For some reason, it was just there. And he, and he was like, you're a drummer. And I was like, oh, I'm a drummer. I have a purpose. I led them to Dumbledore to guard the... Yes? Shouldn't have said that. No more questions. Don't ask any more questions. What that dog is guarding is strictly between Professor Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel? I should not have said that. Women of Ireland can no longer put their trust in the cervical check programme. That I was misdiagnosed is bad enough, but to keep that information from me until I became terminally ill and to drag me through the courts to fight for my right to the truth is an appalling breach of trust. It's I never want to see this happen again, and if I do die, you know, I want it to be not in vain, and I want to make sure that uh, there are protocols put in place. I've been fighting this terminal part of the disease since 2018. This is my fourth line of treatment. Most people don't get to four lines of treatment. There's nothing they can do for you, you know? So I just thought, no, I'm not doing this. I can't do this anymore. My dying wish will be for the women of Ireland that because of what has happened in this past year, maybe my last year on earth, they will be able to trust that their lives are in safe hands, that they will be minded and cared for at their most vulnerable, and that everything will be done to give them the lives they deserve. Okay, Liz O'Neill put that all together for us. And if you came in late or if you just didn't catch some of the names I gave earlier, thought that was Ray Laiuta, Paul Servino, Coolio, Terry Hall, Paul Ryder, Dennis Waterman, Angela Lansbury, Queen Elizabeth II, Irene Cara, June Brown, Ronnie Spector, Anne Hesch, Olivia Newton-John, Kirstie Alley, Marvin Lee Aday, or Meatloaf, David Trimble, Tom Parker, James Cann, Jerry Lee Lewis, 
Taylor Hawkins, Robbie Coltrane, Christine McVie and of course Vicky Phelan. I suppose for many of us stands out. She had become a great friend here of ours on the programme. Uh, many great interviews over the years. She was an inspiring woman and she also greatly enjoyed doing a culture club with us. And uh, she was delighted to do it, I remember at the time she said, because we didn't talk about cancer. We spoke about her love of music and books and how she embraced life. Uh, Brianna Parkins, who stands out there for you? It would be Vicky Phelan. Do you know, it was so unfair that she had to fight. She should have never had to fought that fight that hard in the first place, but she rose to the occasion magnificently and you know she left a legacy of maintain their age stay angry you know keep these people held accountable i think that was the most powerful thing she left behind on tomas mcdermott who stands out for you yeah well i'd echo everything uh, yourself and brianna said about vicky Phelan. um vicky would stand out obviously she you know in terms of the impact that she had had she changed our screening program and health service for the better and uh, she brought a focus on to women's health care that we have never seen before and as you've touched on matt uh, was an extraordinarily generous and kind person what strikes me is the obviously the, the loss of any life is very sad but it's particularly the ones who are uh, that bit younger so tom parker for example um from the wanted was only 33 years of age uh, which is very young to, to, to pass away and he died of a, of a brain tumour um, and then you have Taylor Hawkins who I think was 50 Coolio was in his 50s Anne Hesh were in their 50s they are young people and it just would strike me that um, as mentioned that yes it is sad that anybody would die but to die younger than you should is uh, is, is particularly sad Lisa hand for you I'd imagine Vicky feeling obviously but who yeah. else jumps out for you? Well, I suppose just, you know, being, I was a child of Greece, you know, I mean, so, uh, you know, I suppose the passing of Olivia Newton-John, because I just still remember seeing that film and just, you know, my young self was just, you know, blown away, particularly at the end when she kind of rocks out in that sort of black outfit. And I just thought, okay, that's, I want to be that version of her, not the one that went before. And I suppose with my journalist hat on, obviously, Queen Elizabeth, not because, you know, I was personally touched by it, but as a journalist, I'd covered you know, royal visits and I'd covered Princess Diana and all that. So, you know, I was, I just, you know, I was kind of caught up in very much and kind of watching how that was handled and the comparison, say, between her death and, say, Princess Diana. I mean, the, the difference was vast. What about you, Dave Hanratty? Uh, I'll mention Taylor Hawkins of Foo Fighters, which I think is still very, very troubling for a lot of music fans. And I think if you saw the tribute concert to him and saw the performance of My Hero, which saw his teenage son playing drums in his place, if you can get through that clip without shedding a few tears, you are made of tougher stuff than I am. And also, uh, rest in power to Ronnie Spector. I think he can make a very, very legitimate claim that Be My Baby is the single greatest song ever written. And just hearing it there in that montage, I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel a bit better now. <laughs> it was obviously heavy stuff. And I mean, I know uh, Vicky Phelan, again, I mean, you can't not mention her because it felt that day when she passed, when the news broke, it felt like a light went out in this country and she ought not to be forgotten. I can't imagine that she will be. She won't be. Uh, others that we didn't put in the reel, and again, Liz O'Neill did a terrific job stitching it all together, but the others included actors like William Hurt and Sidney Poitier, Ivana Trump, one of Donald Trump's wives, uh, Aaron Carter, Darius Denise. Loretta Lynn, Martin Duffy from Primal Scream, only this week as well, and Naomi Judd. OK, we'll be back with lots more in our review of the year after this. Thank you to the listener who texted in to say there was another beautiful young mother of two in her early 30s who died because of the cervical cancer debacle. Her name was Lindsay Bennett from Longford. I know you can't remember everyone, but she deserves to be remembered. RIP to them all. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for reminding us of that. 
Okay, let's talk about international news a little bit. And um, I admit we didn't do enough on on this particular story during the year. But Brianna Perkins, just tell us about what has gone on in Iran. So Masha Amini, she was a young woman in her early 20s, um, was out on the streets, got picked up by the Guidance Patrol, which is the name of, I guess you'd call the morality police in Iran. And they go around making sure that women are wearing their hijab properly. In the last couple of years, um, we've seen women in Iran feel more confident to wear their hijabs a little bit looser. So maybe like there's a few strands of hair poking through. The Guidance Police go around and correct them, which is a euphemism for sometimes bundling them in the back of a van and placing them under arrest. And Marsha Amini later died in hospital. The police claimed that she died uh, of a heart attack as soon as she was arrested and taken to the station, but leaked uh, scans show that she has maybe injuries uh, that would be consistent with police brutality, so being hit in the head. And it sparked widespread protests, and the first ones kicked off around the 17th of September because lots of young women had had interactions with the morale the, sorry, the, the guidance patrol before and were tired of living in fear. And we'd seen kind of rumblings of this happening, you know, as late as 2017. There'd been protests before, but not on this widespread scale. Um, so people are, the, the protests are still continuing and, and there's sort of this optimism that perhaps finally the, the revolution, what was brought in, that sort of heavy-handed Islamic law might be overturned finally. Of course, Lisa, and even this week, we've seen in Afghanistan, the Taliban is now stopping women from getting third level education. And we all decry this. But I suppose when you look back, you know, we weren't too brilliant in the 20th century ourselves in Ireland, were we, at times in the way we treated women? No, not at all. Um, not in the slightest, actually. I mean, if you think women were essentially second class citizens for much of the 20th century, I mean, the marriage bar was only lifted in that, you know, that prevented women from working after they were married. I mean, from in the public sector, that only was only lifted in the early 70s. So, and, you know, we, we've just seen, I mean, how many times has very, have various Taoiseach stood up in, the, in, in, in Leinster House, in the Dáil, and issued an apology to some group of women or the Magdalene other... Magdalene laundries, Magdalene laundries, baby homes. Yep, the, yeah, the cervical cancer. I mean, it's just been a long litany and it's just, it is really, really depressing. Um, and I And I think... Really, the solidarity that a lot of you know Irish women feel towards what's going on, I mean, it's it's not it's not really comparable. But we, you know, I think there's just not one of us that just is absolutely heart scalded over watching the young women in in countries like Iran just have every opportunity taken away from them because education is the great leveler. And I know there's, you know. The, I, there's now an edict, I think, I believe, going out that you know they're just going to take young kids out of women you know, young girls out of out of all education, primary, everything. So, I mean, th- that means they just don't have a chance of, of breaking out of poverty because education is, is, is the way out of that. And it's it's absolutely awful. OK, let's move on to what has been an extraordinary year in Britain where they've had three prime ministers in the course of the year. So we've put together some audio of this. Oh, where do you start? Well, you've got the chaos from Boris refusing to resign, Boris Johnson, before he finally did. The 45 days of Liz Truss, who lasted, was outlasted by a lettuce uh, and her mini budget. We have the Suella Braverman resignation, fracking confidence vote at the Commons, Truss going, and then the election of Rishi Sunak. If you have lost the confidence of your MPs and you're required to step down as leader of the Conservative Party, you will not seek to dissolve Parliament. 
I, I think the last thing this country case. needs, the, because uh, we the need, last thing, because no, this house, but the this la- house, I, but I'm not going to step down in the last thing. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. It, thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. Let Liz Truss answer, please let her. When inflation gets out of control, interest rates go up. Rishi Sunak, please let Liz Truss answer. I don't accept those points. It's an honour to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. We have made mistakes. I'm sorry uh, for those mistakes. But I've fixed the mistakes. I've appointed a new Chancellor. Uh, We have restored economic stability and fiscal discipline. Downing Street says the vote was treated as a confidence motion. The eyes to the right, 230. The nose to the left, 326. So the nose have it. There was a group, including several cabinet ministers, who were basically shouting at them, and, and at least one member was physically pulled through the door into the voting lobby. This is an absolute disgrace. As a Tory MP of 17 years, who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time, I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. I have just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. Of course, all to us about Dermot, they missed a trick at the end. They didn't bring back Boris Johnson and that would have made it completely <laughs> farcical. That's right. And I had actually forgotten that, Matt, until I heard his voice again. I said, my God, you remember he was on one of his 14th holidays and he was weighing up coming back uh, to run for it. Ah, what can you say that hasn't been said? I suppose Boris Johnson, as we know, has been shown himself to be a liar, a cheat, a spoofer. Liz Truss, one of the worst media performers we could ever see. Um, the only thing that she is consistent is her inconsistency that we have seen her being an anti-royal liberal Democrat, a Remainer, a Brexiteer. Um, and then just her incompetence would just baffle you. 
And then Rishi Sunak has come in and I suppose luckily for the Conservative Party, he appears to be boring and kind of relatively keeping a steady hand on things. But they have just had utter chaos. Not only did they go through three prime ministers pretty quickly, or um, we're on six chancellors of the Exchequer since 2019, which is again crazy to think about it. And that's where I kind of started to reflect upon this, to, to ask him the question of who is really benefiting from a destabilisation of British society? Who was benefiting from a weak Britain and who benefited from a weak Europe? These, these questions are the ones that I'm starting to look at, because if you look even leading up to Brexit and the, that, the chaos that that uh, led to and that they're still recovering from, there was obviously Russian money involved in that. The Russians had a, a played a hand in it. And this question of key bono, who benefits, is certainly the question that I would look at. Oh, you're, um, you're going all conspiracy theorist on us, are you? I've begun to reflect on this, Matt, generally. And you can look at the same in the States, for example, um, that th- there is certainly a question of who is benefiting from it. Again, the chaos that came after uh, quasi things uh, mini budget one would have to also ask um, who is benefiting from that but it is interesting and also though what strikes you is how quickly it can change that if we look at in the space of uh, since Tony Blair and Gordon Brown that British society became incredibly destabilised very very quickly and then we see a version of the same thing happening in the States that it took one or two, one presidency really to destabilise the whole thing and that we almost have civil war um, and uh, the, the the January 6th riots that is the thing that is is most frightening and is certainly something that I think domestically here in Ireland uh, we, should, uh, we should not um, forget about. I was listening during the week to at the rest is politics the podcast Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart and they were doing a really interesting comparison between what had happened in Argentina and how it had declined as an economic force in the 20th century because of exceptionally bad decision making and looking at the potential that Britain could go the same way in the 21st century that things are that bad but they I think at times always find some solace in the fact that they're a monarchy and that they have first a queen and then a king to look to. Let's hear a little bit of Charles making his first address to the British public as king. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And... We owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother for her love, affection, guidance, understanding and example. Dev Hanratty, the British, I suppose, the only time they got away from crisis this year was the crisis of the Queen's death. It became a distraction for them. And now they've got, of course, the whole... Meghan and Harry thing, they, they seem to be completely caught up in the soap opera of the royalty and the monarchy as a distraction from the important things. You could almost call it a permacrisis, Matt, if I could, uh, <laughs> if I could be so bold. Uh, do you remember where we all were when that speech went out to the world, that charisma speech that we just heard? It was just like you're ringing people up and you're turning on the television. This guy is so electric. Uh, yeah, no, this is the problem. I mean, it's, it's been a continual fiasco and a continual circus over there. And, you know, sure, I think when we talked on this very show about the passing 
rising of the Queen, um, we got a lot of angry text messages. Uh, I think because people are... Too soon, I think we were accused of that day. <sighs> we were very respectful. I went back and I listened to that segment and I was like, I didn't say enough. No, it was great. Go back and listen to it, guys. But uh, essentially, with this one, it is a soap opera. The Netflix show about uh, Meghan and Harry reflects what is actually happening in the corridors of power in the UK. And just to bring it back really briefly there, when that clip about the, the political kind of circus that they were going through... I hate to say it, but um, Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Johnson, there coming on the like, like, like on the audio, it was it was almost like an old friend coming out of the the wilderness because you're just like terrible human being, awful for the planet, but wildly entertaining, you know, like like, like the way Trump was. This is the thing, like they are. Well, well, don't forget, like just to go back to the Latin thing. I mean, he did quote, was it Cincinnati or somebody in his in that farewell speech from Downing Street, and everybody ran away and had to look and. This this lad was famous for making a like a glorious comeback after he had been sent packing. So I think you it know trust we, fell too fast for him really before he'd had the opportunity oh, to milk the yeah. lecture circuit, oh, replenish the coffers. Yeah. I think he probably still thinks Trump like that he can come back. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And um yeah, he he just needs to he's on the he's he's now just trying to make as much money as possible just to you know, to said fill the coffers and He's doing and, his Churchill uh, cosplay again, isn't he? Oh, completely. And, you know, then before he has to take a pay cut and come back to, to 10 Downing Street. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I mean, it is a so The whole thing has been... And the, the Royals are a soap opera. I used to call them South Westenders, you know. So... <laughs> well, we need to take another break. Lee Hand, Brianna Parkins, Owen Swaz McDermott and Dave Hanred are with us. And we look at entertainment issues starting with the Oscars slap and the Wagata Christie trial and other issues after we come back from the traffic with Neil O'Reilly. So Lise Hand, Dave Hanratty, Brianna Parkins, Ultimas McDermott all with us still to conclude our review of the year. And as we've been talking about Boris Johnson and as Donald Trump's name came up, let's hear him announce his intention to run again to be United States president. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. So many incredible friends and family here tonight. It's such a beautiful thing. It's, some people say, how do you speak before so many people all the time? If, when there's love in the room, it's really easy, if you want to know the truth. Okay. Could it be, Lisanne, that actually what Joe Biden and the Democrats need is for Trump to run again for the Republicans? Because he actually may be far more beatable than Ron DeSantis or other potential candidates. Oh, I think so. Um, I mean... When you compare that particular launch to his his original one in 2016, where there was like golden escalators and there was a real sort of energy about it. I mean, he just even just sounded kind of low energy there and like he was going through the motions. But there's no doubt Biden would like to to uh, to run against him because, you know, he really since winning in 2016, he really hasn't had a, any kind of great luck after that. The um, the midterms were you know, a disaster for the Republicans. They they started off this year thinking they were going to just walk back into the the uh, House and Senate. And a lot of the reason that they didn't um, was simply that the MAGA candidates, the ones that were endorsed by Donald Trump, like just flat, like just literally flamed out. They crashed and burned, most of them. Um, and some of them were absolutely crazy. 
I wonder if a listener who texts in says, oh, Jesus, will you stop fecking playing voice clips of that Muppet Trump on the radio? The last few years have been a pleasure not having to listen to his stupid voice. So could it be well, that even though he was great for the media at one stage, we've done with him. He's boring now. The reruns have become boring. Yeah, I suspect that listener won't need to worry too much. I think Trump is is on the way out. He's lost the momentum uh, that he would have had with the poor performance, as Lisa's talked about in the midterms. Uh, we're now going to, I, I think the cult of Trump is on its way out and that it's going to be Ron DeSantis is the, is the new person that people will need to keep their eyes out for. Trump is like, he's like a WWE wrestler who the crowd has stopped cheering for and he needs kind of profile and attention and he's really struggling to get any of it at this point in time. He's not making much of an impact and now he's doing kind of weird stuff like selling NFTs and making just lots become, of money out of it for himself, not yeah, even for campaign the election. Four and, see, and a half million quid in the day. I think the thing with Trump is that we will now see him moving away from politics, but I don't believe that we're going to be uh, as much as Biden might want to take him on. I don't believe the the Republican Party will uh, follow that lead. Let's recall what happened at the Oscars when Chris Rock made a joke. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? That was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh oh. Richard. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name out your. I'm going to, okay? Explain the context for those who may have forgotten Dave Hanratty. It's just outstanding censorship there. I really, really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I rewatched Enemy of the State recently and he has a very similar moment where he shouts at someone and that's ruined now. It's all ruined now. The context is Will Smith was waiting in the wings to win his Best Actor Oscar, which he did win later that evening for King Richard. And Chris Rock was presenting the award for, I think it was original documentary feature, which is a good pub quiz question if you're into that kind of thing in the years to come. <laughs> and he made a, he made a, he made a, made a fairly tasteless joke at Jada Pinkett Smith's expense, uh, because she has alopecia and she's bald. Uh, again, not the best joke. Chris Rock has since said, you know, it was actually a nice joke and, you know, like it's not the worst joke I've ever told, but it wasn't great. Will Smith gets out of his chair, walks onto the stage. Everyone thinks it's a bit. He walks up to, Chris Rock thinks it's a bit. He's he's playing along with them and then bam. Slaps him hard across the face. Uh, like, the, the mic sound. I mean, like, I, I must say I'm furious that Owen beat me to a pro wrestling reference there, but fair play to him. <laughs> but that did sound like when a wrestler like gets the microphone at the end and it smacks a guy with it. Um, and then we, we haven't stopped talking about it. Will Smith's career has gone into a strange kind of stasis period. Now, he did have a film out there about a month ago, but nobody really, really bothered with it. He's banned from the Oscars for 10 years. He himself put out this very performative apology. And let's hear that apology. Why didn't you apologize to Chris in your acceptance speech? Um, I was fogged out by that point. It's, 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 it's all fuzzy. I've reached out to Chris um, and the, mes- the message that came back is that uh, he's not ready to talk. And when he is, he will reach out. Um, so I will, I will say to you, 
uh, Chris, I apologize to you. Uh, my behavior was unacceptable, and I'm here whenever you're ready to talk. What you make of that, Brianna? Uh, I remember talking to this with my colleagues in the newsroom after this happened, and they were like, oh, my God, isn't that terrible? I was like, nope, justified, deserved, had it coming. And they were very interested in my theory, which is that sometimes violence is the answer. It was an open-handed slap. It wasn't a closed fist. And I was like, I think everyone should be able to open-handed slap one person of their choosing. That's the Australians year. for you, Matt. That's the Australians <laughs> for you. Yeah, that's why we're all polite. We Sorry. keep things in line. At and the we Oscars run... specifically? Or just we're efficient day, people because there's the imminent threat of violence. Sorry? <laughs> like, like at the Oscars if it's a bit boring? Because that was the most interesting thing that happened yeah, in, in about 10 years. Like, I mean... And, well, his, like, to give the background, his wife suffered from alopecia and talked about being very self-conscious about it and, you know, had lost her hair and was feeling very unfeminine. So there was a bit more background to just, oh, he made a joke about his wife and his like male ego was offended. Like, no, she'd actually struggled with this. And uh, yeah, maybe that's a, maybe it's an indication of the culture I was raised in, but that's what's going to happen. Okay. In the month of January ahead of us, there's going to be a book out from Harry Windsor and uh, Prince Harry's Netflix documentary, <coughs> Let's hear a little clip in which he discusses his brother William's reaction to the news he wanted to step back from royal duties. Have our own jobs, but also work in support of the Queen. But it became very clear very quickly that that goal was not up for discussion or debate. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and... And my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. But you have to understand that from the family's perspective, especially from hers, there are ways of doing things and her ultimate sort of mission goal or slash responsibility is the institution. People around her are telling her, by the way, that proposal or these two doing X, Y, Z is going to be seen as an attack on the institution then she's going to go on the advice that she's given. Okay. Could it be, following the theme we've had already on this programme, we need to have a fight or a wrestling match between William and Harry, and when they knock themselves out, they can tag off and they can send in Megan and Kate to finish off the job for them with all your sound effects and wrestling. I'd love that, yeah. I'll be the MC. Or actually, no, no, I, I can be the guy who picks the entrance music for each person. Like just <laughs> some kind of new metal here, some classical music there. Um, I just listened to that clip, though, the drama in it, like, like the music choice that they picked as well. Look, I've had shouting matches with members of my family before I'm sure many people have it's never underscored to this crazy <laughs> third act of a thriller film and which just puts it into such a bizarre context and like that's the thing where it's like you are actually a normal family underneath it all was it that terrifying when I don't think it'd be pretty terrifying if Prince William had a go at me I'd be like alright man whatever like I mean come on it's not he's not he's not scary is he See, if they had just belted each other out in the Buckingham House, Buckingham Palace car park we wouldn't have this problem now they would have sorted it out they would have shook hands as brothers do and they would have gotten over it yeah, I mean, it, it's just, rant. it's just the whole thing is just so overwrought. I mean, it really is. <clears throat> it's, uh, and you kind of think, okay, they had the, they, they've had their moment in the sum of the documentary and now they, you know, they had this, the, the book Spare is coming out. And then where do they go after that? You know, I mean, like what's left? 
I mean, are they going to keep milking this for years? Or I know they have a new series in the works, or are they going to sure, say, we're ready to move model, on? Oh, Owen yeah. Tomas McDermott, last word to you. Well, uh, very briefly, um, his grandmother applied the never explain, never complain model. And what I, strikes me as very interesting is Megan and uh, Harry have managed to convert complaining into cash and winning in, um, whinging into moaning. And their whole thing is laced with contradictions. But having said all of that, I tried to apply my enemy's enemy is my friend. And given that Clarkson and Morgan are against them, I'm now back in Camp Harry and Megan. Thank you very much. On Tomas McDermott from the Communications Clinic, Lee Sand, Brianna Parkins and Dave Hanratty for all your contributions. One listener says, apart from Vicky Phelan, you haven't mentioned anything about Ireland. Are we that boring with nothing happening this year? Yeah, it has been the most boring year in Ireland that I can remember. We didn't want to have the last day of our live programming talking about the housing crisis or the health crisis or COVID. But when it comes to actually exciting political stories and other things going on, it was also a dreadful year, has to be said, for murders, and particularly murders of women, which wasn't what we wanted to talk about today, particularly when there are uh, charges and people who will be in the courts next year. But when it comes to political excitement, this year was pretty dull. Anyway, 2023 will be better, won't it? Thank you all for being with us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here.